Well, like Ray said, it's Thanksgiving break for you guys. Hoorah, right? Uh, how many of you feel relieved? How many of you don't feel relieved? <laughs> About 50-50. How many of you didn't answer? Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you for that. You're somewhere in the middle there. You don't know what you are. Um, anyway, it's Thanksgiving break, and uh, it's always a little bit weird to know what to do uh, on break. Uh, you know, we got most of our students leave. They go home for the weekends. And we Around Thanksgiving, we actually lose about two Sundays in terms of everybody being here. So uh, we're going to take a break from the dating series, and we're going to go a little bit different direction for the next two Sundays. Um, we'll return to Acts, the series that we took a break from before dating, uh, back in, or we'll, we'll, uh, we'll rehitch that at the start of next semester. So, Lord willing. But today what I want to do is just... Uh, Introduce a topic that's related to the Christian life or Christian living, just really practically, that will help us as we grow progressively in our sanctification. And the topic is that of meditation. So we're going to flip over there. We're just calling it biblical meditation. Uh, and this week's just part one. We'll, we'll kind of introduce it. And then next week we'll follow it up again. Biblical meditation. So when you say the word, when someone says the word meditation, what do you think of? Just in your mind, just kind of bring that up. Or you just shout it out. Tell me what you think of. So when somebody says meditation. Louder. Yoga. Okay. Eastern mysticism. Buddhism, maybe. I, uh, I looked up a website last night. I just Googled. This is always a great way to get an introduction for a sermon. What is meditation? And uh, I was going to include some excerpts, but it was too discouraging. So, uh, but it took me to a site, kind of the main one, you know, the Google recommended site took me there. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to trust this for the, for the good definition of meditation. And it was actually almost completely counter to what we would say is biblical meditation. And so what is it not? Uh, what's what, what are we not talking about? We're not talking about emptying our minds. Okay, that's that's one of the kind of taglines of Eastern meditation: emptying our minds. So the goal is to completely empty your mind, to not think about anything, and to get this sort of inner peace. And that's the that's the goal. If you can even have a goal. So some Eastern philosophers say there is no objective to meditation other than just to meditate on nothing. And so, but we're going to see that meditation in Scripture is virtually the complete opposite of the, those Buddhist or Eastern meditation practices. Biblical meditation, that word, involves filling our minds with truth, not emptying it. And, uh, but it's not just mindlessly repeating that truth over and over again, even though that, that might be helpful, not the mindless part, but the repetition may be helpful. But it's not the mindless repetition of truth. Our minds are active, active and engaged in biblical meditation. And so we're actively considering the meaning and the application of Scripture. We're actively trusting it. We're actively yielding ourselves to it and aligning our lives with it. That's kind of the idea of biblical meditation. And we're going to explore that more in the lesson today. And it's incredibly... Oh, yeah, you're fine. It's incredibly essential, this uh, this topic of, of meditation. It's essential to our growth. It really, it really connects truth 
with transformation in our lives. Really, that's that's the it's kind of the bridge between the truth and the, and how the truth transforms us in the day to day. Again, we're going to unpack that. And it's this practice. Satan obviously knows that it's very important in our lives, and it's often neglected. He comes after it. And so you think of just some of the common threats to meditation in your own life. I was thinking about it in my, own, in my life. Uh, it's, it's neglected in our culture in general. Uh, we, we live in a kind of an instant gratification society, don't we? Uh, we've always got something to distract us, something to occupy our thinking. Think about how frequently, how uncomfortable you are without looking at your phone. Like if, if there's just sort of a moment in your day, what's the sort of impulse? You go to your phone, kind of pick it up to sort of scroll through something, some sort of app, some, some, some program, some form of social media. Typically, there's just sort of this impulse to, uh, to just fill our minds with those, those kinds of things. So our culture doesn't help us. Distractions abound, um, especially with our media. And we're all just generally busy. I talk to everybody, you know, it's, oh, I'm so busy, busy this, busy that. Like, I get it. You know, it's life comes at us. We've got a lot of responsibilities. Um, many of you are in school and, and you're carrying deadlines and relationships and church responsibilities and all sorts of things. And so life's coming at us. And so we get busy. And so we tend to not prioritize uh, meditating. And in general, I mean, if, I think if we're honest, we're like, OK, meditation how do you do that, right? Like, what, what is that? What, in, what's in, what's involved in this process of meditating? So, ignorance is kind of a, a threat. It's a big threat. Like, we don't really know exactly what is involved in this, this thing called meditation. We're kind of scared to be, fall off the, the wagon over here with Eastern meditation, but we don't really know what we're doing on the other side, other than just reading our Bibles and praying. So, those are some, just some, some generic threats. This, just a, a beginning, list uh, i was just thinking about it this this past week and so what i want us to do for the next two weeks is to let the psalms both teach us and model for us this important practice of biblical meditation so this week we're going to let psalm one teach us about meditation we'll look at the topic from this psalm and then next week what i want us to do is look at what what we'll call meditation in action uh, we'll watch David identify lies that he's that's tempting him to fear, and then combat those lies with truth from Psalm three. So we're looking at Psalm one this week, Psalm three next week, and it's kind of all around this topic of of meditation. And so, if you would turn in your Bibles to to Psalm one, if you're not already there. Psalm one is obviously the opening psalm of the Psalter. You got to kind of observe that from the number right after the the title of Psalm here, but it's sort of an it's it's an introduction it's an introduction to the Psalter really. The Psalms are divided into five books. We'll talk about that more in just a minute, but five books, and Psalm one's really our introduction to the rest of the of this hymn book of Israel. Psalms are meant to be sung. And as they sing, they were actually a form of meditation, right? So the Psalms are packed, not just with Christian experience, but with theology about God, about his ways with his people, uh, with warnings and promises, reminders of the covenant promises that God's made. And so the Psalms are just chock full of truth 
uh, for life, a life that trusts in Yahweh and, and, and is grappling. And so really the Psalms function as like meditation 101, if you will. Um, and, and you were going to see that the Psalm 1 opens with, with, uh, with an invitation um, to meditate on Scripture. And really what it's doing in this psalm, if we could boil it down, Psalm 1 seeks to compel us or to motivate us to be people who joyfully meditate on Scripture. That's the point of Psalm 1. If you just kind of want to write, like, write that down and kind of keep that in your mind. It's the, the idea of the author, what he's trying to do in this psalm is he's trying to compel us or motivate us to be people who joyfully meditate on Scripture. Because he knows if we're not influenced by the truth, then we will be influenced inevitably by the deceptive counsel of the ungodly, by just worldly philosophies and things that we need to be identifying and and repenting of. So that's really the idea, kind of overarching idea of Psalm 1. And so today, let's just begin our time together by looking at how this psalm incentivizes us or motivates us to meditate and then we're going to flesh out what the practice of biblical meditation looks like more practically so we'll do that today so why should we meditate okay why should we do that what are some incentives for this this practice of meditation we're right out of the gate it affirms that you're in the realm of blessing it affirms that you're in the realm of blessing Look in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Or we could translate that, the teaching of Yahweh. And on his law, on his teaching, he meditates day and night. So there's our first incentive, if you will, this um, this first incentive is just it, it affirms that you're in the realm of blessing. So if you're someone who sees the danger of worldly values, like in verse one, and you reject those, you don't you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That means you don't you don't live your life under their counsel. You don't stand in the way of sinners, meaning like so if you're walking and then you you plant firmly in their path, not to oppose them, but to kind of go along with them. And then you don't sit in their seat, meaning, okay, now now you're sitting at the table with the scoffers. You're joining in with them um, against the Lord and against his, his word. So you reject that. So if you're somebody who sees the danger of worldly values, you reject it, and you run to the word of God with joy, then this psalm says you're in the realm of God's blessing. Blessed is the man or woman, person, who does this. He's essentially saying that those with this kind of character trait are truly blessed people. But we need to unpack this just a little bit so we don't kind of misunderstand what's going here. So what does it mean to be in the realm of God's blessing? What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about it from an opposite perspective, it's the opposite of being under God's curse as a result of sin. So to be blessed by God is to experience his favor his kindness, his abundant goodness, his presence, we could even say, his favorable presence. And sin and rebellion against God, that, that severs us from him. 
That cuts us off from blessing in the realm of blessing. Think about the garden with with sin. They were propelled out of that relationship with him. And we've been out of outside of the garden ever since. So sin and rebellion against God sever us from him. They cut us off from his blessing. They bring judgment. And we all start out this way in Adam by default because of the fall. And so did the psalmist. He started out there too. Nobody was nobody escapes from being under the curse. And so is he saying that meditation then earns you the ability to get into the realm of blessing? What do you think? Is that what he's saying? Some of you are shaking your heads. Some of you might be thinking, well, it kind of looks like what he's saying. The answer is no. We can't meditate enough to get God's favor. We can't meditate and, and then think that because we do that, he'll sweep our sin under the rug and not deal with it and that we'll be made right with him. Just for something that we do. We know that. The curse was dealt with by the Lord Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, it was under the sacrificial system. All of that's pointing to Jesus. So now in the new covenant, that's been dealt with by Christ. So we know and believe, but it's worth repeating, that God poured out all of his wrath on his son, Jesus, for our sin. And he earned for us the obedience that we need. And so we enter into the realm of blessing through faith in Jesus as we entrust ourselves to God's promise of mercy that comes to us through him. As we entrust ourselves to his promise of forgiveness. So we enter into this, this blessing, not through meditation, but through faith. And this, this fundamentally changes us from who we were, dead in sin, to now who we are, alive in Christ. And as a result, it fundamentally changes our disposition toward the word of God. So just hang with me here. Let me flesh this out for you. We once hated the truth. So maybe we would have never said that. Maybe if you grew up in a Christian home, you would have never said that. But you do not, in your sin, you cannot submit to the scriptures. That's what the scriptures say. You want to be your own God. And you may kind of bring it along as it's helpful to you, but at the end of the day, you're your own God. And so we once all hated the truth, and we viewed it as restrictive. But now that we've come to know the truth... In Christ, we've come into him in the gospel. Instead of restricting us, we see that the truth has actually set us free. It's true. It's beneficial. It's helpful. It's good. We were once enslaved to lies that were destroying our lives, but now our eyes have been opened. That doesn't mean we're never influenced by lies, but they've been opened to them. And we see that God's word is now the life-giving truth that brings order and peace to our lives. God's word has now become, like the psalmist says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It was not that before. And now through faith, we find ourselves delighting in God's word because we perceive the value of it. We want it. And if delight is hanging you up and you're like, man, I sometimes delight, sometimes I don't. We desire God's word. That's another way of translating this Hebrew term. We desire it. We see its value. We want to pursue it as it's as it's relevant to our lives. And so the psalmist isn't saying that delighting in God's word and meditating on it earns us a right relationship with God. He's saying that if you delight and meditate on God's word, that evidence is that you actually know God. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? So, helpful illustration. When I was growing up in North Carolina, 
I would be out in the community, and my family's generations there, you know, in this community. And so everybody knows everybody. And I would be out doing something, or I would say something out, you know, at the store, in the community. And there would inevitably be some old person that would be standing there and would say, well, that's a Mackie if I've ever seen one, you know, something like that. And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? So what were they saying in that? Did my action make me a Mackie? Yes or no? No, I am a Mackie. That's my last name, for those of you who don't know me. Okay. So, of course it didn't make me a Mackie. It merely revealed that I am one by the way I acted, by, by what I did. So the fact that we desire the Word of God and we seek it out in meditation reveals that we are under God's blessing through faith. We've entered into that blessing through faith in Christ. Does that make sense? And so, my point, the way this is an, an incentive then is that it works toward your assurance. Okay? It's not the basis in the sense, like, like the atonement is the basis of your assurance. So we look to Christ by faith, trusting that God's going to be merciful to us. But this adds to it. It works toward your assurance. God is producing this hunger for the word in you, and it affirms that you're under the realm of his blessing. And that's no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what it appears to be. And that's, that's an incentive to meditate. So that we might grow in that kind of assurance. So as you see yourself running to scripture and not to the world, as you, as you're skeptical of your own heart and you're skeptical of the influences around you, as you begin to take delight in the word, you will grow in your confidence before the Lord. It doesn't make you any more saved, but you see the evidence of the Lord's salvation in your life. And so that's, that's really our first incentive here. That it, it affirms you're in the realm of blessing as we meditate. Meditation also, our second incentive, it also produces fruitfulness now. Okay, look in verse 3. So this man who meditates and delights in the law, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So the second incentive is really that our lives are going to be eternally fruitful, productive, make, dare we say, prosperous. We'll, have, we'll talk about that. But prosperous now. That's the promise that's held out to the man who meditates. That that's, that's what meditation is going to produce in your life. And so he just he gives it to us in this beautiful tree imagery. He's like a tree. And the, the verb here is transplanted. The tree has been transplanted by these streams of water. And this tree that has a water source, been transplanted, nurtured, this tree is going to yield fruit. It's going to yield productivity. It's going to be productive in its season or as the seasons come. And notice this other little tagline he says here, and its leaf does not wither. It's going to be uh, sustained in the midst of drought um, and heat and many other elements because it's transplanted by this by this water source. So that's the imagery, that's the metaphor that he gives. And then right after that metaphor, he transitions and says, look, here's the point. In all that he does, he prospers. Okay, so that's 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 the idea. In all that he does, he prospers. So I'm just calling this that meditation will produce fruitfulness now. So what kind of prosperity or fruitfulness are we talking about here? So 
in the scriptures, in, especially in the Old Covenant, you see these promises that are given to believers that talk about they're going to have success, and that's not limited just to spiritual success. It's also going to be financial success and blessing and those kinds of things. And God still has that for his people in the fullness of his kingdom. So when Christ returns, we're going to experience all of the material prosperity you can possibly imagine. So that's still part of the promise that that didn't get forgotten just because we transitioned into the new covenant. But now in this age, we get to the promise. We get to the, the all of the prosperity in its fullest sense through suffering, through the way of the Messiah. So the Messiah suffered and then he entered into his glory. Even in the old covenant, that was still the pattern. David, Joseph, others suffered before they were exalted in glory. Job, same thing. So what kind of prosperity are we talking about? Well, I think because we're in the new covenant, we can we can set our sights on the the holistic prosperity that's coming in the kingdom. But now it's it's relegated predominantly to spiritual prosperity. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, if we transition over to the New Testament, places like John 15, the book of Galatians with the fruit of the spirit, we see that. That this this fruitfulness or this productivity could be described as a, as a steady increase of the fruit of the spirit. Which are things like love. Christ like love that dies to itself for the good of others. Joy. Christ promises us joy that his, his joy will be in us and our joy will be full in John 15. Peace and patience. Kindness, the ability to forgive, the ability to forbear, to endure. Those kinds of things are, are given to us in the spirit or are going to be cultivated in our life as we meditate upon the scriptures. Another kind of example of this spiritual prosperity, I would just say, in addition to the fruit of the spirit would be a, a continual energy that comes from the Lord. It does, doesn't mean you never get tired, but there is a, a continual energy that's supplied to you, that's fueled by hope, that makes you productive. And that's exactly kind of what we see in this illustration. His leaf does not wither. This is a promise for those who are rooted in the eternal God. He continues to give us truth and hope, and that produces energy in us now. And perseverance through difficulty. And what we often see is we're enslaved to lies. We often see our energy sapped, right? When we're in unrepentant sin, it's like David says, my bones are breaking. Like my spirit is weighed down through anxiety or depression or anger or whatever those things are. So when our heart's right with the Lord through meditation, then it's going to it's going to lead to this continual energy from the Lord. Uh, It's going to be a spiritually productive life. Um, Again, spiritual productivity leads others to repentance and growth in Christ. So you're useful to the Lord. It maximizes and redeems the time. You live for what matters now. You develop the grace gifts that are given to you. And you leverage those gifts for God's kingdom and the good of others. And then ultimately, as you get to the end of your life, you, you leave a legacy. You live a life that's, that's well lived. A life that has weight and dignity. And that has minimal regrets. Because it's it's spent and it has been spent for for Christ in the kingdom. And so this is an incentive, right? It 
produce that the fact that when we meditate, we figure out what that is and how to do it, that that's going to actually yield. The promise here is it's going to yield incredible fruit in your life. Uh, Right here, you're going to be like a like a fruit tree that's transplanted and all that you do, you're going to prosper. And so last thing here on on incentives here, it culminates in eternal life. It culminates in eternal life and we'll be brief. We'll be brief here. It says in verse five, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We could summarize it here by just saying that that all of these things are going to culminate in the gift of eternal life. Those who have never repented and continue in their wickedness are headed for eternal judgment, as the psalm says. They're going to bear the curse for their rebellion. That's going to happen. But the Lord intimately knows those who are his, his righteous ones by faith. They're going to live eternally in his congregation. That's what it says, that their sinners can't stand in the congregation of the righteous. And that congregation is those who endure through the judgment. And this is another incentive similar to the very first one that it affirms you're in the realm of blessing. And it's it's our eternal hope that we're going to be raised from the dead and glorified with Christ. And the path includes meditation on God's word. That's the path of blessing. It's going to be a continually fruitful path that's going to culminate in eternal life. So those are just some brief incentives. Okay, as you're thinking about why should I meditate? The psalmist says, that's why. Those are some of the reasons that should compel you, motivate you, incentivize you to meditate. So. Brings us to kind of our next area. What exactly is meditation? What are what are the elements that make up what we call biblical meditation? And I think we can see some hints of that here in the in the psalm itself. The number one thing here, the the first element of of meditation is what I'll just call active consideration. Just meaning he meditates, just like a, a just a definition of the of the verb, another synonym. Ponder, you could say. The word meditate literally means to think, mull over, ponder, consider. And it's derived from the idea that that somebody's muttering kind of under their breath as they contemplate things. And so the the root idea is just a, a low muttering. And so sometimes this word is used for like the growl of an animal um, in that sense. But in our context, it means just to ponder, to think on, to consider, to meditate. And so I, I call this active consideration. So your mind's engaged. You're not emptying it, but you're 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 engaged. There's a there's a thinking element to this, and it deals with your mind. In the Hebrew, that's not just your head, but that's also your heart. In terms of your heart is where you feel, it's where you make decisions, it's where you think, it's what you it's where you believe things, it's it's where your volition is. So. You're actively considering something. And then the verse goes on. It's what are you actively considering? You act, there's active consideration upon the word of God. So in this text, it calls it his law, his Torah, the law of Yahweh, the Torah of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. In the psalmist world, this definitely included what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, which is not just commandments but it's also narrative it's also promises that god has made and in god's character god's person who he is what his plan of redemption is how he's working that out 
So he meditates. The blessed man meditates on this at a minimum on the Pentateuch. Now, I think by the time the Psalms were all compiled in their final form, we'll say, as a Psalter, as a hymn book, they were arranged into five books. Why do you think that is? What does that sound like? The Pentateuch, right? So I think it's meant to sort of be evocative of the Pentateuch, not saying it's a new law, but it's it's in the same vein. So I think the Psalms open by, by an invitation saying meditate on the Psalms, too. You know, they're part of inspired scripture. And so in light of that sort of trajectory, if now we're past the Psalms, we're in the new covenant, we could just blow this open to say meditate on any of God's revelation, any of his revealed words in scripture. And that's what we want to sink our teeth into the truth or fix another another metaphor for this is to fix your eyes. Sometimes that's used right beside of meditation. So fix your eyes on the truth, not on falsehood. As revealed in scripture. So that's what we meditate on. And then notice what it says here. Night and day. Day and night. So what does that mean? So we meditate on his law day and night. So does that mean you're a monk. And you go up into a mountain. And all you do is ponder the Lord. You know and his word. No. I don't think that's what it means. I think he's not talking about that you kind of disconnect from society so all you do is think. Instead, when we pan out, I think that we're going to see that our hearts and minds are always thinking. We're always considering. We're always making assessments and values. We're always asking questions. We always have perceptions. All those things are always happening all the time. We're always considering. So what I think he's saying is we should we should be bringing our creator and a redeemer and his word into that consideration. That's the point. God's word should be brought to bear on all of life in every season and concerning every circumstance. In other words, day and night. Follow me. See what I'm saying? In every like nothing's excluded from from the reach of God's word. His word should be our lens, our glasses that we look through everything with. So that's the that's the that's the elements, if we will, of of meditation. So here's my working definition. And I pared this down. Okay, (laughs) My working definition of what it means to meditate is to give intentional and diligent thought to the significance of scriptural truth to all of life. To give intentional and diligent thought to the significance of scriptural truth. To all of life. That's the definition. I'll leave it up there just for for a minute. Because it's going to go away. To give intentional and diligent thought. To the significance of scriptural truth. To all of life. Kind of a synthesis of Psalm. One. uh, One two here. So that brings us to our next. Topic or an element of this is. What is the goal of meditation? What are we after? The end, the end product here. And that's, that's an important question to ask because it's going to sort of narrow the focus of meditation and really show, uh, it's really in line with the psalm. The goal is to be transformed. So we could say it like this. The goal of meditation is the renovation or the transformation of our lives by the truth. The goal of meditation is the renovation or the transformation of our lives by the truth. 
I've written two texts down there. We're not going to look at them for the sake of time, but especially the Joshua text is really important. Um, Romans is obviously very important too, but from the Joshua standpoint, he says, the Lord tells Joshua almost verbatim what we see here in Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 is really an echo back to to what the Lord says to Joshua, which is building on even a bigger theme in Scripture of meditating on on the teaching of the Torah of God. And there he fleshes it out more. He fleshes it out more in, in, in one eight. He says, actually, I may have this on screen. I do. Look at that. I forgot that I put it on there. He says, look at this. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's almost exactly what we see in Psalm 1. Why should we meditate? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Do you see the parallels to Psalm 1? And what's beautiful about this Joshua passage is that the Lord, the Lord's law, while it's good and righteous and helpful, is so counterintuitive to the world's methodologies. So Joshua's going into the land, you know, and, and he's like, okay, go to Jericho and then march around it seven times. Joshua's like, okay. So he just, he, he trusts the word of the Lord and he does it, right? And then, you know, they don't obey the Lord. You know what? Achan takes the, the F-Odd or whatever it is and the gold and silver and he kind of hides it in his tent and that was something he shouldn't have done. He should have devoted that all to the Lord and burned it, but he didn't. So he kept it for himself. And the Lord didn't give them victory in the next battle because they were dishonoring the law. They were dishonoring the teaching. And so the Lord is in control of blessing and prosperity. And he is essentially saying through this, trust in me, trust in my law and teaching, and I'll give you I'll give you success. So the idea here is that that our lives should be transformed. And that's the idea of Romans 12, 12, 2 as well. Our lives can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That by testing we may discern what is the perfect or what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So as our minds are renewed, we test what God's will is, we come to know it, and we come to follow it um, in a more comprehensive way. So that's the goal of meditation. And then lastly, where we're going to end here is the process of meditation. So how does this actually happen? What's the process look like? And here's where we're going to spend spend a little bit of time, and then next week we're going to really show this in HD, kind of as um, David is working through this. And this is really important. So how does this happen? I like to think about the core of the process, okay? What's what's the core of it, kind of at the at the center? And this will make sense once we keep going. The core of the process is is identifying, I've sort of summarized it in four Four participles here. Identifying, turning, replacing, and then living. So identifying sin and lies and thought patterns that are that are not according to the truth. Having the power and ability to turn from those thought patterns. Replacing those thoughts with what's actually true that will actually set you free. And then living, submitting your will, no matter what you feel like. Submitting your will to, to live out what those truths, um, what those truths promise. So identifying sin, turning from it, replacing that, those lies or falsehoods with truth and living it out. 
Another way of saying that would just be recognizing the idols that are in our hearts, those things that we're offering worship to before the instead of the Lord, those false gods that we're functionally worshiping. Learning to turn from those false gods and embrace and trust the one true and living God. It's another way of saying it. And that's the core of it. That's kind of the that gets it's the sin behind the sin, if you will. The most fundamental areas of our lives. What's going on in our thinking and processing. And so you can see how meditation is, a, is related to that. So more specifically, this process of, of learning to do this, I think, happens in two directions. Hang with me, okay? Two directions. And we're kind of packing it in right now over Thanksgiving break. <laughs> just think of this as a little prelude to packing it in literally as you, you eat your... That was just so cheesy. Never mind. Scratch that. Okay. So... I want you to think about this this core being fleshed out in two directions. One is from the scriptures to life circumstances. So from the scriptures to our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, in this direction, truth comes to us. In the the, the weekly gathering of the saints, in your personal Bible reading, um, as you talk with your friends, truth comes to you. Okay? And as that truth comes to us, we choose to either believe it or not. We begin to evaluate our lives in light of that truth. And that's the meditation part. As we consider the truth, the Spirit reveals the ways that we don't believe it. And when, and then when we, we then should consider what our lives would look like if we really believed these truths. Does that make sense? So my point in saying this is I think we oftentimes think when we come to a service, we hear the preaching of God's Word, that we sort of, the growth has happened, you know, like it's done. We now, now we go for the rest of our day. We kind of check that off and we move on. But the point of meditation is to say, no, you have to embrace that. And your life has to reflect the fact that you've embraced that. You need to yield your life to that or else it just becomes what you sort of profess, but you live over in this reality. And so there's this gap that we're always going to have in our lives. And I've talked to a number of you about this recently. There's always going to be a gap between what we profess and what we believe, what we actually functionally work out in our lives. But we want to be minimizing that gap through meditation as we, as we uh, implicate ourselves, as we bring the Word of God to bear in our hearts and in our lives. And so this direction comes from the Scriptures to us. And so sometimes we're not even asking the right questions. Right. We're not we don't even it's not even on our radar. And so we, we come into a sermon. You probably experienced this lands on you. And you're like, I have to consider this for my life. I wasn't considering it before. Now I need to. The other direction, which I think is even more neglected. OK, even more neglected than that first one is what I, I'll call from life circumstances back to the scriptures. This also is how we meditate from life circumstances Back into the scriptures. So what do I mean by that? Well, the Lord in his sovereignty, everything is controlled by him. He brings circumstances into your life from the most minute to the biggest, hardest, coolest circumstances. He controls all of that. For your good. okay? and so he brings these circumstances into your life because he's trying to show you something about your heart and where you trust and what your allegiances are, and where your idols are at. Not because he's trying to hammer you, but because he wants to set you free, right? So he brings the circumstances 
that begin to reveal the sin patterns in your life. Okay? So we're working from the life back to the scriptures now. So now we've, we've, we're beginning to identify some sin patterns and the check engine light should sort of go off in our minds. Like, okay, I'm repetitively sinning in this area. Or I, I don't, I'm enslaved. I seem to be enslaved in this thing. You know, I'm constantly convicted and I don't know how to get out of it. So he begins to reveal these patterns. And then we, through the truth, he helps, he helps us to trace those patterns back to the thoughts and the beliefs and the objects of our false worship that, that are governing those patterns. So, I mean, it's, this is just so helpful to, to do in real time. You know, it's like when Mary was pregnant, it was like coming right up on the edge of it's time for her to give birth. I began to be anxious, and I didn't really know why. And as I began to think about it, I, I, I was noticing that I was kind of worst-case scenarioing my mind. What if something goes terribly wrong Mary and the baby both die. That was a fear I had. Like, just kind of out of nowhere. Like, what if that happens? And I was anxious about it. So I'm anxious. I'm kind of thinking that through. I'm like, man, what am I, what am I idolizing here? What am I trusting in? Well, I'm, I'm trusting in that, that I can't, I mean, I would, that, that would be devastating if, if that, if that ever happened, but what my whole life is built around them. So what, what's the Lord exposing in that, right? And then as I kind of take it a step back, I'm thinking, what truths counteract that? And I was I was reading the Psalms in that there's a psalm that talks about David saying, I will walk in the light of life. He was confident and his enemies are all around him, threatening his soul. But he was confident that God would see him through death, even to walk in the light of life. And it was just like the Lord just flooded my mind with Mary and Eleanor will walk in the light of life. If this happens. And it's just like, I mean, it didn't take away sort of the pit in my stomach, you know, of the fear, but it like. It brought relief and comfort through the truth. The truth began to set me free from that anxiety. Does that make sense? So we could flesh this out in a number of ways. That was just one kind of off the front burner. So we come, our life, the Lord brings these circumstances and reveals sin patterns in our life. And it it's traced back to these thoughts, beliefs, these objects of false worship that we have. And when we when we begin to repent at that level, and we begin to be able to trace our our thoughts and thinking back to those fundamental areas, we see tremendous growth. And then we become tremendously helpful to other people to help them do this. And that's my very last little ditty here on this process of meditation. We should meditate together. We should do this process together. We need the help of each other to meditate. Because when you're deceived, you don't know it. You may be on repeat with the sin in your life because you're deceived back here and you don't know where that is. And it's hard for you to figure that out on your own. The Lord can do that. He can break through anything. But the, the one thing the Lord has designed is his church and the elders of the church to help you think those things through. So I just want to throw all that out there. That's part of the process of, of biblical meditation. There's a lot we didn't say about this process. Um, a lot of other practical things we could talk about, but this is this is the baseline, okay? And we're going to work some of the practical stuff out next week as we look at Psalm 3, so you can be reading that. Psalm 3 and how David is, he's identifying lies that are being spoken to him. He's acknowledging how scary they are to him. He's fighting those lies with particular truths that combat the lie and upend that lie, and then that results in confidence in his life 
and the ability to stand and, and be productive in the midst of his enemies. The things that are terrifying him. And so we're gonna, we're gonna trace all that out next week and, uh, be super helpful. But if you have particular questions, please, uh, come talk to me or any of the other leaders here. I'll be glad to, be glad to help you out. So, make sense? Okay, let's pray.